reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, to him, answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's, he's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer, outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord. Starting question this morning, fun one. Do you have a pride problem? Now, most often, when we think of pride, we, we'll go to the caricature of Ron Burgundy in The Anchorman, that, that caricature of a boastful, conceited blowhard, and we say, no, I'm nothing like that. But of course, any of us who have taken some time to think about what pride is really like realize that sometimes it's not just the outward, boastful arrogance of a Ron Burgundy. Sometimes our pride expresses itself much quieter, much more insidiously. So as an example, if you're asking, do I have a pride problem? You might say, instead, am I the kind of person who is always comparing? I'm very aware of other people's talents or successes, the relationships that they have, their looks, what they have in possession. And either... I feel superior and look down on others because I have an abundance of what I value or I'm constantly jealous, feeling awful because I know I don't measure up. It's one of the problems of being good at something and being somebody who's always comparing 
is that you feel great about yourself until you find somebody who enters the room who is better. C.S. Lewis has a great quote in Mere Christianity talking about this sort of comparison pride when he says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Some of us don't go around comparing. We're simply competitive. The kind of people who are driven to win, and our pride must find itself in the gold medal. And it depends on what it is that you're after, I guess, how your competitiveness comes out. So it might be that you're success-oriented. Then you're always striving to get to the top. But of course, as anyone knows, even once you've gotten to the top, if that's what you're after, you'll simply be anxious or dissatisfied once you're there. Rockefeller was famously quoted as having answered a, a journalist who said, how much money is enough, Rockefeller? And he anxiously said, just a little bit more. Or that famous Tom Brady interview from 60 Minutes that we've mentioned here before, when here's Tom Brady, Super Bowl MVP, winner of almost everything he could possibly win as a quarterback in the NFL, and he says, is this all there is? Is this it? Driven competitively to succeed, but once you get there, anxiety or dissatisfaction. You may not be after success, but you can still be competitive if you're, say, after approval, the love and acceptance of people. And maybe not everyone realizes it, but inside you're constantly clamoring, clamoring to be invited, clamoring to be recognized, clamoring for credit, clamoring for praise. And then there's the side of pride that many of us are good at, which is the side of being hurt. Are you often or easily hurt? When you hear critique or correction, do you feel like it's a personal attack? And you respond with defensiveness. I don't have that problem because I'm always right. So when I'm defending, it's really just proving the truth. Some of us are easily hurt and offended, and so we assume that somebody is out to intentionally get us. We see and, and keep records of tallies, tallies of, of slights and being overlooked and records of wrongs. We do it at work, we do it in our marriages, we do it in our friendships, and we have this, this record book of injustices done against us. Easily hurt. Fragile egos. You know, the amazing thing is both superiority, the sort of arrogance and boastfulness we think about, and inferiority, self-loathing, self-hate, come from a place of pride. To reverse a commonly heard axiom, pride is not just thinking too much about yourself. It's thinking about yourself 
too much. And whether that's an overinflated sense of self or a deflated sense of self, at its root, it's pride. So the question is not, do you and I have a pride problem? It's, what does your pride problem look like? The root issue is that we hunger. We hunger for meaning and identity and worth. Tim Keller, in a, in a book called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, it's a simple little booklet, said this, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. See, at the root of pride is that we're all looking for identity and worth on our own. And so if we just start with this fundamental basic place is that we all have a pride problem, the question is, what would it look like to be free from this? And what would it take to get us there? The answer, as always the answer here, is Jesus. In our passage in John 13 today, Jesus not only demonstrates this sort of humble service that all of us fail to be able to do, he also points to the very thing that enables us to do it. Let's start in verse 3, where we get the setup to Jesus' famous washing of the disciples' feet on the night before his own crucifixion. In verse 3, we get Jesus, it says this, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, and then it goes on from there. So the setup to this whole story is Jesus is being declared as the great one in the room. It says, in his hands have been put all things. In other words, he has all power and authority. He really is great. We like to think of ourselves as great. He really is great. And then he goes on to say he is from God and returning to God. The idea there is that he is part of the family of God the Father. There's an identity issue there that's being declared. It's saying you you had your identity and your status in the community based on the family, the household that you were from. And Jesus right here is being, being told, we're being told that he is the one who is from heaven. His household is God's. He has more identity and status and value and worth than anybody else in the room on the earth. From God, and all things are in his hands. And yet, he humbles himself to show the full extent of his love for his disciples. And think about how he does this. This is on the eve of his crucifixion. I mean, can you imagine your, your 17-year-old son is, is, uh, 18-year-old son is on his way to VMI, right? He's going to have that horrible summer that they have a, at a place like VMI. And that night, you sit back and let him clean the dishes and mow the grass and take the dog out. No, of course, that night, you do everything for him. You want to celebrate him, have fun with him before he has to go off to those few months of torture, right? Here's Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, not saying, hey, guys, you know what's happening tomorrow. How about a little love? Even on the night before his death, he's not expecting, he's giving. And he gives to them of himself. It's shocking what he does. 
in verse 4 and 5, we read, even though everything was in his power, even though he was coming from God and returning to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The first thing he does is completely shocking. It's that he takes off his cloak in their presence. Somebody's cloak in that day and age suggested who they were and their status in the community. His robe would have indicated that he was a rabbi, a teacher in the community. He takes it off, disdaining the things that would say, this is your status, this is your position. And not only that, he's seen now in his loincloth, in his underwear, Now, this is hard for us to grasp just how shameful this was because we wear our underwear to the beach. But here is Jesus doing something that nobody would have done. And he takes it one step further by taking a long towel that was reserved for slaves and servants that we have symbolically represented in a stole that is worn during communion or baptisms. And he wraps that around himself. So instead of wearing the cloak of a rabbi, somebody respected in the community, he's wearing the nakedness of a slave. The society looked down on slaves. They wore nothing, essentially, so that they would be disdained. And Jesus puts that on. And then he begins to wash the disciples' feet. As we mentioned last week, this is an act of hospitality. It was done to honor guests that came into your house. But if you were the host celebrating a party, You would have your servants wash your guests' feet. You would never do it. One rabbi writes that a Jewish slave should never be forced to wash feet, only a Gentile slave. There's no instance in any Jewish, Greek, or Roman writings from the early centuries of an inferior, of a superior, sorry, washing the feet of an inferior. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. Jesus shames himself to honor his social inferiors, showing them sacrificial love on the night before his death. And then he calls the disciples to do the same. We read in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, he's not talking literally about go around washing each other's feet, although that could have been part of what they did. He meant it symbolically, that this should should typify your entire life and the way you interact with one another. He's calling the disciples, like he's calling all of us, to the kind of countercultural humility and servanthood that was never going to be accepted in that day and age. It's what he calls us to, to sacrifice, to humble ourselves, to love, to serve one another. But instead, we compare, we compete, we're defensive, we're offended. Elsewhere in this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller, commenting or paraphrasing Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard writes, Sin is the despairing refusal 
to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from God. We said this earlier, our pride issue, what keeps us from following in Jesus' footsteps is that we're seeking our identity and our worth on our own. Here's the way it seems to play out. We're finding our identity and worth in something, right? And very often we're giving all that authority to other people. So we go around trying to find our identity and worth in other people's opinions. And when we do that, we have to build a resume of how great we are. When I was in ninth grade, I was determined to go to one of the military academies. And if you're going to one of the military academies, I learned early on, you have to have a great application. That's not just good grades. That's good test scores. That's sports that you're playing on the field, not just on the team. You have to be a part of clubs and have leadership in those clubs. Your entire life for three to four years has to be built towards getting the connections and the resume that will get you into an academy. And I found myself in those early years of high school simply building an application. Not necessarily being a part of clubs or playing sports or working hard because it was the right thing or I enjoyed it, but because I knew it would look good on the application. In a sense, in whatever areas of life we value most, success at work, friendships, our physical talents, our mental talents, we're constantly building a resume constantly trying to build up enough stuff so that then finally we'll feel like we can get in. But we end up doing so many things without satisfaction or without pleasure just because it'll look good. When our identity is built around other people's opinion, we're either going to go around feeling superior if we're living up to everyone's expectations or we're going to be self-loathing, depending on how we're measuring up on a given day. When we're not measuring up, it, it, we often in our culture today call it low self-esteem. And, and there's a, the, the culture solution to the problem of looking to other people's opinions is to not look to other people's opinions. In other words, what, what our culture says is if you're wrapped up in what other people think about you, you know what you need to do? You need to not worry about what other people think about you. And just do what feels good to yourself. You need to replace other people and the world around you as judge of your life and be judge of your own life. But the reality is people around us and our own minds are just as much tyrannical. In a world, in a culture filled with radical individualism. When you add in the goal of self-esteem, what you get is narcissism. When the framework is do whatever you want, you are judge of yourself. And when the goal is your own satisfaction and self-esteem, the end result is always going to be increasing selfishness. 
And so we end up, when we only worry about our own opinion, we end up being so self-consumed, it's hard to really be concerned for others. And yet we can still wrestle with inferiority and superiority. It's just that we ourselves are judged rather than our friends or family or coworkers. So how do we do what Jesus did? He says, so I urge you to wash one another's feet. How do we humble ourselves, take off our cloaks, bow down and do the sort of thing that only a slave would do with one another? We need more than an example. We need a savior. We need to be made right before we can live right. We need the gospel. The gospel says our problem is not self-esteem, it's sin. And Jesus here in our passage says we all need to be forgiven. When he gets to Peter, Peter, of course, protests because Peter's great at doing things like this. No, Lord, don't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I need to clean you. Now, what he's talking about here is not is not dirt on Peter's feet. He's using the dirt on Peter's feet as a symbol for the nature of Peter. Peter, you are sinful. You are dirty. You need to be cleansed by me. Or you have no part of me. In verse 10, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. Here he's saying, you need to be cleaned by me. And if I've cleansed you, you are clean, though not every one of you. And he's talking about Judas here. And I want us to think for a second what, what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is not saying. What he's not saying is Judas is bad, but you, Peter, are good. Both Judas and Peter need to be cleansed. Judas betrays Jesus, but Peter denies Jesus. Both of them sinned. Both of them are dirty. The reason why Jesus is able to say, but you are clean, is because he realizes that Peter's trust is in Jesus. The difference between Peter and Judas was not goodness or badness, it was faith. Peter believed. His dependence was on Jesus, not on himself. And Jesus says, I have cleansed you, and once you are clean, by me, you are clean. That's what the gospel tells us. All of us are sinful, but in Christ, all of us have been made clean. You are clean and forgiven as you ever will be in heaven. We need the gospel to tell us that we are forgiven. We need the gospel to assure us that we are loved. The reason why Jesus does any of this is to show the completion of his love. In verse 1, the very setup of this whole thing, we read Jesus says, it says this about Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That word end is the Greek word telos, goal, completion, fullness. 
He loved his disciples, and now he was about to show them, to demonstrate, to act the fullness completion of his love for them. See, ultimately, what Jesus does in washing the disciples' feet was symbolic and pointing to what Jesus does the next day on the cross. This night, Jesus humbles himself to clean his disciples. Just as the next day, he humbles himself to cleanse us all by taking our uncleanness on himself. On this night, Jesus takes off the clothes of a rabbi and puts on the clothes of a slave. The next day, he strips himself of his glory and takes on the sinfulness of man so that we can put on his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, He, God, made him Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. On that night, as he's washing the disciples' feet, he gives up his honor and glory, shaming himself to honor his disciples, just as on the next day he gives up all his glory and deals with the ultimate shame and disgrace so that we might be brought into his glory. It's a demonstration of his love. That's why in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The humility, sacrifice, and love demonstrated in that foot washing points to and anticipates what Jesus does on the cross. That night as he's taking off his clothes and washing the disciples' feet, he's dealing with social shame in order to honor the disciples. The next day, he deals with physical and spiritual suffering and shame and death in order to bring us all into the arms of his loving embrace. The gospel tells us we have been forgiven, that we are loved, which means we can finally be set free. We can finally be set free from the tyranny of other people's opinions and from the tyranny of my own opinions of myself. You know, when you really grasp the gospel that you are sinful but forgiven, that God has loved you greater than you deserve, it is entirely freeing because your identity and worth are fixed in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And that means we don't have an overinflated sense of ourselves nor a deflated sense of ourselves. In other words, we can, we can walk by a mirror and not just stare and admire nor walk by a mirror and be completely disgusted and ashamed at what we see. We can simply walk by a mirror. Oh, hey. Because we hold our own opinion of ourselves so open-handedly. Whether everyone else thinks we're beautiful or not, whether we think we're beautiful or not, what matters is not my opinion or your opinion. What matters is God's opinion. And he's told me I am loved. I am forgiven. My identity is secure. My worth and value are immense. So I'm not engrossed with my beauty nor disgusted by my ugliness. When the only opinion that matters has declared you loved and forgiven, then you're not going to be destroyed by your failures nor overly proud of your successes 
Jesus, Jesus is not merely the example for living this way. Hey, go and try to be really good about taking off your greatness and washing other people's feet. Jesus is not just the example. He's the only source of this sort of life. The gospel gives us the identity and worth that we seek on our own so that we can live the life of freedom, forgiveness, and love that we're meant to live. What would it look like to live into this sort of gospel-driven, gospel-filled humility? Well, we'd be the sort of people who don't need credit or recognition. We'd be able to rejoice when other people succeed. Nothing would be beneath us. Nobody would be beneath us. We would be willing to serve and give and love without expecting return. And if we had a whole community of people who did this, who were so filled with the gospel that we could live it out in humble service and love towards one another, we would be the sort of people who are always admitting our weaknesses and struggles and doubts and sin. Most of us constantly are trying to hide our weaknesses and doubts and sin. But if we're filled by the grace and mercy of God, we don't need to be afraid. We could be a place of humble openness. We'd be the kind of people who don't have peacocks, people who are always trying to gain attention, or manipulators, people who are always trying to control others' opinions of them. We'd not be a place filled with gossip or constantly hurt feelings. Instead, we would be the kind of people, the kind of place that's filled with grace and with love. Everyone full of God's love and grace, everyone giving God's love and grace, none of us needing to guard or steal it. A friend of mine grew up in a home with three boys, I think about a year apart, and he said when they were all teenagers, his mom had a hard time keeping food on the table, but they had one of these rules, which was this. The boys were not allowed to go for seconds until dad was completely finished. So every night, mom made two whole chickens, Dad was the slowest eater around. But as soon as he was done and set his forks down, fork and knife, and he said, I'm finished, the boys would go after the two chickens that were left like like hungry dogs. When you're starving and can't get enough to eat, you will be ravenous, fighting for your share. In contrast, when I have Thanksgiving dinner, There's usually so much food that I've filled my plate to a rounding mound. And when I finish that plate, I've gone for seconds. And you know, if my cousin or my uncle walked in late, I wouldn't be stabbing at their fingers with a fork because I'm so full, I want them to have some of the food. When you're full to overflowing, you don't begrudge somebody else a share. You give. Hey, yeah, you should try the mashed potatoes. They're great. If God is not your fill, then you're going to constantly feel empty again. But if your identity and your worth are filled with God's grace and love for you, you're finally going to be able to give and love selflessly, sacrificially. Don't leave here trying to be a better person. That's the fundamental starting point. Don't leave here trying to be humble like Jesus was humble. 
Because often our, our mindset is, I've got to be more humble so God will love me more. God loves you enough to die for you. Let that humble you. In order to be truly humble, you need to believe something is greater than you. The place to go to find this sort of identity is the place of ultimate humility, the cross. We cannot follow Christ's example and wash one another's feet until we've received Christ's gift to us on the cross. In other words, the place to find life-giving humility, selfless love for one another, the destruction of our pride is at feet, at the foot of the cross specifically. And so we go there again and again and again to get filled up and to live. Let's pray. God, our lives are filled with a sort of clamoring and competitiveness and comparing hurt feelings of inflated and deflated pride and ego. We seek others' opinions. We try to live by judging ourselves. What we really need is the grace and mercy and love of the one who gave up everything for us. We need the cross. The cross to humble us. The cross to assure us. The cross to give us grace to walk each day in the feet of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.